0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. My name is James. Let's open up God's word together to Philippians chapter three, verses four to 11. So Philippians three, starting partway through verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection." And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the
1: Lord. God. And thanks to you also, James. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Hey, Jesus is risen. We're getting Anglican, that's great. Good to have you here. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Nick, uh, and get the joy to lead this church. Uh, If you are a regular, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, And for those who are visiting, thanks so much for joining us this Easter, uh, as this is the most important moment in the history of the world that we get to celebrate each and every Easter, as Pat said, each and every Sunday uh, together as a church. We're going to reflect on that Bible passage that was just read out for us. Uh, It was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Uh, But by way of introduction, uh, perhaps you have seen the Netflix docuseries Pepsi, Where's My Jet? This documentary is a wild story. Uh, It's about a young man named John who has wild dreams, and those dreams are in part fueled by a promotion that Pepsi were playing back in the 90s. It was the introduction of Pepsi points. The more Pepsis you bought, the more points you accrued, you could then convert those points for cool prizes. It was the forerunner of our favourite today, Macca's Monopoly, or what's been a big hit in my household recently, Woolworth's Bricks. Anybody? Anybody with the Bricks? We can trade later. We'll trade later. But the Pepsi Points promotion had an ad that went around the world showing everybody the kind of things that you could, you could buy with your points. And it just so happened that at the end of the ad, a kid hovered down into his high school in a U.S. Air Force AV-8 Harrier jet. Seven million points. And so John, his dream was... How cool would it be to have a Harrier jet? And so he dedicated himself to working out how he would be able to accrue so many points to be able to get the Harrier jet. And after doing all his research, after kind of twerking his networks, he worked out it was almost impossible. Financially, logistically, his dreams were over. Until one day, John found a loophole. And he found the catalogue that described uh, all the prizes and in the catalogue for the Pepsi Points promotion it had some fine print and in that fine print it told him that he could purchase Pepsi Points for 10 cents per point, 7 million points, that's $700,000. All he needed was $700,000 and he would have his Harrier jet Now the story unfolds and it goes on and there's a lot of lawyers involved and it becomes a famous court case between John and PepsiCo. But this young man's dreams were fueled by finding this loophole. You're going to have to watch to find out what happened. But for our purposes today, I want to bring it up to begin because the reason it is such a compelling story, the reason that it is, is you watch, you start to dream your own dreams and you get behind the little guy about you hope that he might be able to win and take down the corporate fat cats of PepsiCo, is because aren't we all looking for a loophole to the life that we would really want to have? Some kind of fix for the deepest problems that we all face, some kind of fountain of eternal life that we might be able to find and free us so that we might be able to live forever. Or some kind of moment in history that might exist as a bit of a, a doorway into a new world that might lead us out of this mundane, ordinary mess that we're in into true goodness, true life, true joy, true eternity. Well, welcome to Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus today, we celebrate the greatest loophole that has ever happened. The greatest doorway that has ever opened. And my hope today is to show you that that is true. Not just a hyperbolic statement, an exaggeration. It is true. And true to our theme this week, the way that I'm going to unpack that is by looking at his story and our story. The resurrection of Jesus is a wild story. And we as humans love stories, like Pepsi, where's my jet? We love stories because we're so compelled by them. And we start to shape our identity and our self understanding around the stories that we buy into and that we are inspired by and that we take examples from. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre says I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And it just so happens, if you didn't know already, that the Easter story, the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, the cross and the empty tomb, that there are two and a half billion people around the world right now that would tell you that that story is the one that has most informed their life. That story is the one that has most shaped two and a half billion people today and it's given us the answer, what am I to do with my life? Today I want to focus in on just one person's story transformation. We read from a book that he wrote, the Apostle Paul, who wrote that book, Philippians, from the passage we just had read out for us. And I want to focus in on the story of what happened when he met the risen Jesus, when he encountered the risen Jesus and his life was completely upended. For those who don't know, Paul was uh, around in the first century uh, at the time of Jesus and in the years and decades following. Uh, And he was a member of the first century Jewish elite, One British author says that Paul, more than any other single person, has made us what we are today. So he's been very influential. And his story has shaped the world in remarkable ways. He is perhaps the most influential Christian who has ever lived. Yet through his story, we see a window into our own that I hope you'll see today. On Friday, we heard the story of the cross, the three crosses, in fact. Those two criminals hung beside Jesus with varying responses, one of rejection and one of repentance leading to redemption. But Paul was not like those guys on the cross. Paul, rather, was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. And what we would deem as a bit of an insult today to call someone a Pharisee back then was a badge of honour, that you were in the, the highest echelons of religious life in first century Palestine. Paul himself was trained and educated under some of the most impressive scholars and religious elites in his day. He would actually go on to write most of the New Testament letters. But we have this one that we'll focus on today, this one little passage where he details the difference that the resurrection made in his life. So let's talk about the story of Paul, and through it, let's unpack that little passage for us. What he says starts out this way at the end of verse 4 in chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he tells us, how great his spiritual resume is. He wants to show off his religious bona fides. And we should all be very impressed as we hear of this guy. This guy had good reason to be confident in his morality, in his discipline, in his pedigree, and in his lineage. Spiritually and socially, he was at the top of the tree. And he even, did you notice, had under his belt that he was so passionate about God that he went and killed others who were heretics, according to him. Christians, those who actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He went around, participated in their capture and in their death. When Paul weighed up his life against the standard of God's holiness, he could look at it and say, hey, I'm blameless. But then something happened one day for Paul just when he was on his way to go and persecute more Christians. The Bible tells us what happened elsewhere in the book of Acts. It details the beginnings of the early church. And in chapter 9, we meet Paul. And it says that as he was on his way to Damascus, so that he might be able to capture more Christians, a light from heaven shone around him. And out of the light beamed a, a voice that he heard saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's going to go persecute Christians who are living in Damascus. And Paul cries back, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so Paul encounters the risen Jesus. That same Jesus who was crucified, that same Jesus who is dead and buried, that same Jesus, he's now alive risen from the dead three days later. Now, Paul wasn't the first one to encounter the risen Jesus. We have records of all the others who did, and Paul himself says that even some 500 people came to see Jesus in the flesh in the days following his crucifixion. And this encounter that Paul has with the risen Jesus completely transforms him. He's on his way to go kill Christians, and yet we know at the end of his life, Paul's the one who himself would be one of those Christians being killed for his Christian faith. Now Paul tells us how this might have happened. He says in in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so the resurrected Jesus completely changed Paul. And we note that because of Paul's stature in the community, because of all the boxes he had already ticked, because of the religious game that he had been participating in, it's not as if Jesus came along to try to make Paul more religious. No, he already had that covered. Rather, Jesus came along to show Paul what truly mattered. Paul was moral already. Paul was disciplined already. Paul had all his religious ducks in a row. But Paul came to see that the resurrection is the loophole for life. That the resurrection showed him the story of reality. Made him understand what was truly valuable. And so it made him come to this point where what he was leaning on completely shifted, where he found his confidence completely shifted. No longer confident in the flesh, in all that he'd performed, in all that he'd done, in all that he had achieved. Rather, he was now confident in the resurrected Jesus, confident in what Jesus had done for him. He goes so far that he now counted everything else as done, as rubbish, not just as worthless, but as worth something negative, something bad, that it's a loss to count confidence in himself when compared to Jesus. Now, just like Paul, all of us have our own stories that we are writing with our lives. I'm sure all of us here, we're we're trying to live the best life that we possibly can in the here and now. Now I've heard another, a funny story before uh, about a man who was looking for a job, uh, and this man was a bodybuilder. Uh, he spent a lot of time in the gym, and so he was he was big, he was swole, uh, he was uh, muscular, but he was out of work, and so he got to the point where he was so desperate he actually saw that there was an advertisement for a job at the zoo. And so he thought, hey, job at the zoo, that might, that might, might be interesting. So he went along to uh, find out about this job at the zoo. And to his horror, uh, in the interview, he, he, he got some clarity on what the job actually was. The, the, job had run, uh, the zoo had run out of monkeys. And so they needed someone to don a monkey suit because there are a lot of schools coming in the, in the next week to come and, and look and, and be entertained by the animals. But there were no more monkeys. And so... The guy was desperate, you know, he needed an income coming in. His gym membership was up for expiration. He needed to keep it going. And so he took the job as one of the monkeys. And so money uh, being tight was it was, he would do whatever he could. And so he arrived at the zoo uh, at sunrise. He put on the monkey outfit. In the darkness, he slipped into the monkey enclosure. And the day starts and the children come. Uh, and all he had to do was look and sound uh, like a monkey. And so swinging between branches and he was eating the the peanuts and the bananas that the keepers were were, were showing uh, or throwing at him. Uh, And now you you can do that for a while, but it starts to take its toll. You know, this is energetic work, trying to be uh, an energetic, entertaining monkey uh, to all the children. And so he was tired. And so it just so happened that later on in the day, he was swinging between the branches, trying to show off how monkey-like he was feeling nauseated, he he slipped, and he actually slipped into the enclosure next door, which was the lion's den. And so, falling into the the lion's den, he starts to scream out, help, help! He's shouting out of the lion's den, and and the lion kind of creeps over, intimidating, stands over him, and then the lion says, if you don't shut up, we're both going to lose our jobs. (laughs) That's a funny farcical story. But in reality, we humans, we we carry around this kind of pretense across our lives. Aren't we trying to build a life for ourselves without actually knowing the creator of life? We're trying to moralize on life in our world today without actually knowing the moral law giver. We put our confidence in our achievements. We put our confidence in our bank balances, on our positions of influence, on our our networks and circles without actually knowing the one to whom we're going to give an account for our life. We live pretending that we're permanent without giving thanks to the one who is eternal. Social researcher Hugh McKay has said that young people in our world today are in the grip of what he calls a a utopia complex. That is that we dream of a world and we think that we're entitled to it where the outcomes of our decisions and our choices and our work are always positive. And yet we look around and we look at human history, which is a conveyor belt of people trying to bring about that life, trying to bring about that utopia, trying to bring about their dreams and achieve their best life only to fall and fail and cry out for help. And yet the people there to help us are playing the same game that we are, pretending the same things that we are with the same kind of pretense that we have. You know, the Bible tells us that our propensity to craft our own life in our own strength, built upon our own achievements, pave our own way, Ignoring the God who has set this up and put us here and come himself, well, that's actually the seed of what's wrong with the world. That, that actually we, and what goes on in our hearts, and even those perhaps dreams themselves, are what's wrong with the world, our pretense, our posturing, our pretending that we've got it together, our putting our confidence in, in who we are, in what we're about and what we have done, and so Paul here is putting his confidence in his religiosity and who he was, in the lineage he found himself apart, and we'd all do the same thing, but we might put it somewhere else, equally as fragile. But just like Paul, you know, our story, just like his, can be completely upended and completely transformed. So let's talk about the Easter effect. What actually transformed in Paul? What changed? What did Easter and the resurrected Jesus do in him? Paul had been persecuting the man and the movement of Jesus, but having encountered him as alive, talking to him, claiming that actually as you persecute the church, as you persecute Christians, you are persecuting me, Jesus said. Well, that changed everything for Paul. And we... See a few of those changes in the verses that follow what we've just read. Just to repeat the end of verse 8. He says, For I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the first thing we see that completely flipped in Paul is that his position changed. He initially had every reason to be confident in his righteousness. He could go through the list of God's law. And he was, as he said, blameless. Have I coveted or envied or desired anything in an unhealthy way that other people have? Which essentially is every day on Instagram, right? Blameless. Have I been dishonest, white lies, flattery, exaggeration? Blameless. Have I ever disrespected my parents? Blameless. Have I ever thought sexually about someone who wasn't my spouse at the time? Blameless. And what he says here is that he no longer looked at that as the source of what put him in the right place. Rather, he started living knowing that he was already in the right place because of the resurrected Jesus. His position changed. He was now found in him, found in Jesus. In other words, Paul was made right with God because of what Jesus had done rather than what he himself had done. And so This is where the resurrection makes a massive impact because the resurrection of Jesus tells us that the cross worked, that the payment for the penalty of our sins, which was death, that in Jesus' death, payment was accepted. And the resurrection is the great receipt flowing out of the till to tell us payment accepted. All our sins. All that is wrong with the world, every propensity within our hearts to craft our own universe apart from the universe that actually is there that God himself has made, Jesus bore that for us, and Jesus put it in the tomb. And while he walked out of it, it stayed dead. Jesus has risen, and in his rising, he has dealt with the greatest consequence of our sin, our very own death. And so like Him, if we put our trust in Jesus, we no longer need to be marked by primarily trying to prove ourselves or running away and avoiding what's actually wrong with us. No, we're marked by Christ's righteousness. He makes us perfect. God will look at us and see us as one of His own, see us as in His righteousness, see us in His perfection. He makes us right. Secondly, we see that Paul's power changed. Because you notice what happened in verse 10, or what he said here in verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, one of the great evidences of the resurrection is not just the uh, transformation of Paul, but of all the earliest disciples of Jesus. Because as we hear or read the Uh, testimony, the eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, we we meet these disciples, ordinary men and women, fishermen, not not educated, but those who rubbed shoulders and walked around with Jesus. And in those accounts, we get this picture that these guys are kind of a little bit slow on the uptake. There's something kind of not quite right there from what, you know, the privilege that we have of looking back and reading the whole story. In the moment, they were feebly and, and fumbly, and especially when it came to the final days of Jesus' life. There's a reason when we recount the story of the cross, all but John of the disciples have fled. All of them in their fear, all of them in their cowardice have left the one that they, hours before, said they would give their life up for so that he might die alone. But something happened in history that changed them significantly because after the claims of having seen Jesus risen from the dead, these same very feebly and fumbly disciples. Peter, for example, who was famously denying Jesus three times, becomes the leader of the church, fearless, even to the point of being crucified upside down. In addition to him, there are many other disciples martyred for their faith. Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded. Matthew was killed by an axe. Thomas with a spear. Several were crucified. Paul himself, we're reading here, was beheaded. Now people die for what they believe in all the time. But nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. So these disciples truly believed that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus. And they wouldn't even renounce that. Belief in the face of death. Now, speaking of Harrier jets, I uh, am intrigued and um, always interested in hearing stories of of air crash investigations. And whenever you hear one of those stories, you always hear about how, hey, everything's going to become clear once we find the black box. You know, the black box is the little thing in the cockpit that has all the info about all the information about the, the, where the flight was going and what happened and what went wrong. And, and apparently it sounds like the, the black box is, is completely indestructible because no matter what, how the crash took place or what happened, it's always like, let's just wait till we get the black box. And you hear that and you think, hey, here's an idea. Just make the plane out of the material of the black box. Does anyone have some money to invest in it? Like, let's let's just make planes out of black box stuff and it will be indestructible. The plane will always be able to be found. Now, what happens in the resurrection is that for Paul, the the resurrection started to fuel him. It gave him a power to endure suffering. It it, it essentially armoured him in black box material. And no matter what he went through, and he went through a lot... Because he knew that Jesus had risen from the dead, he was going to be with God. He was forever free even now. There was nothing that mere man could do to him because of the power of the resurrection that drove him. Though one day all these disciples would die, they never really died. They were just transported to where they really wanted to be. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, he tells us that the same Spirit that rose or raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in all those who put their faith in Jesus. And so, just like him, if you're here today trusting in Jesus, you can know that same power. That same power that doesn't promise to help us avoid the suffering that Jesus endured, but know that we might enter into that similar suffering and use it as a tool to get out of it what we really want, to be like him, to be shaped like him, to be made like him, to be formed like him. And the testimony of billions of Christians today is that they have been changed in those ways, that that spirit lives in them, and it can change us too. And Finally, Paul's purpose changed. In verse 11, he tells us, his singular passion, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Elsewhere, Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus as somewhat of the, the first fruits of what is to come. And by that, he's, he's in an agrarian culture. He's, he's, he's telling us a farming term, this concept of the first fruits, that if you're going to grow any kind of fruit, the best day of the year was when the harvest began. The first day of being able to pick those Royal Gala apples, the first day of of being able to taste what it was that you had sowed months earlier. And it was that first apple that was the juiciest and the tastiest of the harvest, but it was also an indication of how the rest of the harvest was going to turn out, would it be juicy? Would it be tasty? And That's what happens with the resurrection. Just as Jesus rises from the dead, we're told that, that, hey, this isn't the end. This isn't the one final moment. This is just the beginning. This is the first fruits of what is to come. The start of a new humanity, the start of a new creation. And so Paul looks forward to one day when what happened to Jesus is actually going to happen to him. That he might attain the resurrection of the dead. And the Bible says that it's going to happen to all of us. That because of Jesus, death doesn't get the final word in our world. That because of Jesus, suffering isn't the most significant force in our world. Because of Jesus, we find this new purpose. We can live for him. We can start pursuing him. And that purpose that's been put into the heart of Christians all around the world because of the resurrection, it has borne a lot of fruit already in our world today where we reap unknowingly in the 21st century the benefits of it in our Western world. There's been many social effects, a new dignity given to women in contrast to the classical culture, a self-denying health care, particularly in the face of plague, a respect and dignity for life and the individual, a focus on family health and growth, a a radical change straight after the resurrection for those who were worshipping Jesus, from worshipping on the Sabbath to worshipping on Sunday. Christians drive all of that because the resurrection allows us to know the outcome of the future. And so let's get our hands dirty today. But more than that, more than just social changes, the purpose of Paul was to be raised with Jesus. Eternal changes. Spiritual, life-giving changes. And Jesus' resurrection was the great proof that that was going to occur. So Paul, in that spontaneous meeting on the road to Damascus, he finds this loophole for new life. And his life radically changes. Just like his story, you and I, can experience those same changes. In the resurrection, we can have our position changed, to be found in him, to receive a life that uh, means that we no longer need to work for it, need to prove ourselves, but rather receive the perfect accepted payment of Jesus' life, death in our place for us. We can have our power changed Instead of trying to avoid discomfort and craft the most convenient or comfortable life possible, we can find a power outside of ourselves to endure true life, to endure real life, a life that drives us, where nothing need be hopeless, because Jesus is creating a new world and starting with us. And we can have our purpose changed. We have in Jesus' resurrection an offer put to us Do you want to live again? Do you want to be born again? Do you want to rise from death? Jesus says that if we accept that, then we will never perish, never taste death. But even though maybe physically dying, we will rise again. And so this is the effect of Easter, that you and I don't just get to hear about this resurrection life, but get to experience this resurrection life. And you can know this for yourself by trusting in Jesus. That means that you might believe that when Jesus died, he actually was thinking of you. He actually died for your sin. And that when he rose, he rose as a savior over your sin and death. And as we believe that, like Paul, we turn our lives around. That God's power empowers us to be turned around and transformed, living for him. So that when we meet the resurrected Jesus, we might count everything else as rubbish, everything else as loss in comparison to knowing him. So let me encourage you, if you're here and you haven't yet considered Jesus, consider my words today, consider Paul's words today, his story and how that might impact your own story. The resurrection needs an answer. The resurrection asks us to make a decision. The resurrection forces us to come down off the fence and see and encounter the resurrected Jesus and embrace him as our Lord and as our saviour or to ignore it and continue crafting a world for ourselves. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And uh, whether you're a regular here or whether you're a visitor here, I'm going to pray for you. And so I'd love in your hearts, in your heads, uh, to pray along with me. And then after I've prayed, I'd love to continue that conversation with you after. Maybe you came with a friend, maybe you came with a family member, uh, whoever it was, do continue that conversation about Jesus. As Pat said, we exist to help you uh, know Jesus and make Jesus known. And so we want conversations about Jesus. But let me pray that the resurrection might make the same transformation in your life and mine. Today Almighty God, we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that you have shown us the power over death by entering into this world that you have made, this broken world, this world that uh, seems like uh, it has won over us in death, and yet you have come to conquer our great enemy death itself. And so we ask now, Lord, that that same power, you, Lord, who conquered death, would enter our lives today. Lord, I pray particularly for those of us in this space who are only now reflecting, only now coming to be confronted by the reality of the resurrection. Lord, would you help us know you. as not only Lord over death, but Lord over our lives so we repent of how we have fallen short and turned from you. We repent of how we have concocted worlds and uniform verses in which you don't exist. How we have crafted our life with ourselves at the center. And we ask, Lord, that like Paul, you might enter into our lives in such a profound way that you would disrupt us and turn us around. The ways that we are walking, the direction in which we're going, Lord, would you come by your Spirit and capture our hearts, and help us see that in you, our position can change, that our power can change, and our purpose can change. Lord, we need you, and we know that in the resurrection, you offer yourself to us. And so help us to trust in you, and to keep on trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast.